This is Phantom Power. One of the reasons that I do the work that I do, which is writing about uh, music and sound on the internet, is in part because I am fascinated and delighted by objects that are frequently obnoxious. So a lot of the things that I'm engaging with are uh, things that occupy this weird um, liminal or ambivalent space between something that gives people delight and something that makes makes people want to like throw their computer off of a tall building. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Phantom Power, a podcast about sound, sound studies, sound art, acoustic ecology, sound technology, all the sound stuff. I'm your host, Mac Haygood. It is summertime, uh, typically a time when we refuel, work on episodes for the forthcoming season. It's going to be our fourth season of Phantom Power. Um, But still, we've had a little bit of a longer lull than I anticipated. In part, that's because we've been doing a lot of behind the scenes work. We've rebuilt our website. So check out the fabulous new phantompod.org. Um, We also have a new mailing list for an occasional Phantom Power newsletter. You can sign up for that at phantompod.org slash newsletter. And there's some other really great stuff in store for the podcast. So stay tuned. We'll talk more about that in the near future. In the meantime, I want to share with you one of my favorite podcasts, and that's Will Robbins Sound Expertise. For those of you who are into musicology or popular music studies, there's a great chance that you are already a subscriber to Will's show. I personally know a lot of music scholars who are devoted fans of sound expertise. And the reason is simple. Will is a respected music writer and musicologist, and his show features in-depth conversations with established and -and up-and-coming music scholars. For those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Robin, you might remember that I quoted his New York Times obituary of R. Murray Schaefer in our first episode on Schaefer. Link in the show notes. Will Robin has written about music for the Times for at least a decade. Um, He's also an assistant professor of musicology at the University of Maryland, and he's the author of the book Industry, Bang on a Can and New Music. Sound Expertise will be dropping its third season in the fall, so be sure to subscribe. And again, there's a link to do that in the show notes. The episode you're about to hear is one that I, being a media scholar, particularly love. Will interviews Dr. Paula Harper about her work on viral music videos and taste. Specifically, she talks about that terrible Rebecca Black video, Friday, that's probably still rattling around in some dark recess of your brain. Dr. Harper is a musicologist and also something of a self-described viral video junkie. 
She digs into the awful virality of that video and all of its cover versions, discerning what this case study can tell us about genre, gender, and how and why sound travels on the internet. It's a great discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. And by the way, since this interview happened, Paula Harper has joined the faculty of the University of Chicago as an assistant professor of music. So who says YouTube and TikTok rot your brain? So without further ado, here is Will Robbins' sound expertise. Welcome back to Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin, and I'm a musicologist, and this is a podcast where I talk with my fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. You probably remember Rebecca Black's Friday, and if not, you almost certainly heard it. It was absolutely ubiquitous about a decade ago. A music video by an amateur teen musician, which went viral because it was widely trashed as one of the worst songs of all time. Friday went from YouTube to Tosh.0 to parodies and covers on late night TV, racking up tens of millions of views in the process. It was 2011. It was a more innocent time. When our expectation for what kinds of internet content would go viral were not yet fully formed. And when Facebook and Twitter seemed like fun places for have you seen this sharing and cutesy parodies, rather than platforms for spreading conspiracy theories and undermining democracy. Everything about Friday would suggest that it is not traditional fodder for analysis by musicologists. Historically, music scholars have tended to study great music and how it has endured in the canon. Friday, however, is both very bad and very ephemeral, vanishing into the internet ether soon after it became a sensation. But those two traits are also what make Friday a potentially rich case study in contemporary musicological practices. Its ephemerality can help us understand what it means for music to go viral, the cultural expectations in 2011 and today for how music is created and consumed in a fast-paced internet culture, and its quote-unquote badness, and in particular how that badness was understood and framed in its time, reveal deep and entrenched anxieties about amateurism, girlhood, and technology that stretch back through the history of popular music in the United States. As far as I'm concerned, there is only one scholar to talk to about this topic, and that is Paula Harper, who is a postdoctoral teaching fellow at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Harper specializes in music and virality and has published some really fascinating work on the sound of internet culture, from Friday to Beyonce to TikTok. I really hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation today on Sound Expertise. So let's start with an infamously loathed viral music video that you've written about extensively, which is Rebecca Black's Friday. You write in this great article that, which I hadn't realized it was at one time the most disliked video on YouTube. How did you find yourself interested in Friday as an object of musicological analysis? Mm. 
This is a great question. Um, so this was Friday came out back in 2011, which was before I was writing my dissertation. In fact, I wasn't even um, in my PhD program yet. I was in a master's program at the University of Washington in Seattle. And I was teaching a class. Um, I was teaching a class on writing about music. So I was um, helping undergraduate students kind of develop strategies for writing about music. And kind of as a gag, I would begin each Friday's class with a different version of Friday. So, you know, I was, I was on the internet. I was listening to uh, Rebecca Black's Friday. People kept sending it to me. Um, and I was, you know, I was, a, I was a netizen. I was hanging out on the internet and kind of consuming viral internet culture. And so I was consuming a lot of these remixes and mashups of Rebecca Black's Friday as well. And I was, um, I was making my students listen to them as I began each week's class. And so that, that kind of trolling practice of mine as a teacher uh, stuck with me. The fact that I could go for an entire quarter of Fridays and not run out of remixed material for this video, right? The, the fact that people were producing so much and so many different versions of this one object that purportedly we all hated. Um, and yet there was such a proliferation of enthusiastic content production around this object. Um, so it, it kind of stuck in my head, right? And I had already um, sort of done some of the research in putting together this, this catalog of uh, things with which to menace my um, writing about music students. So when I was putting together my dissertation, when I was thinking about um, virality and musical production and musical circulation on the internet. There are a number of different reasons why Rebecca Black's Friday video fit neatly into the kinds of arguments that I was making. Uh, but one of the standout reasons, certainly, and one of the things that I wrote about, focused on in this article that I wrote um, in a special issue of the journal American Music, is the fact of these remixes the fact of just the the kind of massive amount of enthusiastic amateur production that went on around this supposedly loathsome obnoxious internet object right yeah i want to come back to the remix stuff like when you were back in 2011 when you were watching this and and consuming its virality like were you self-reflective about how much it was hated or were you at the point of like everyone else just being like this sucks and like how how funny is it that this sucks or were you more like oh like there's a reason why the people are saying this sucks that's revealing of something i certainly didn't have the argument that i formulate in the in the article which is um that there are kind of genre and connectedly gendered implications to what was going on there in terms of um the kind of reviling of the original object and its rehabilitation in different kinds of um, viral remix um, productivity. But I was also, I mean, I 
I'm one of the reasons that I do the work that I do, which is writing about uh, music and sound on the internet, is in part because I am fascinated and delighted by objects that are frequently obnoxious. So a lot of the things that I'm engaging with are uh, things that occupy this weird um, liminal or ambivalent space between something that gives people delight and something that makes makes people want to like throw their computer off of a tall building, right? So just like right in the middle space between those two emotions or having those two emotions at the same time um, is how I've engaged with a lot of stuff on the internet, um, including, but certainly not limited to the Rebecca Black Friday video. Uh, and so, yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in, um, you know, thinking about recording, um, writing a history of other people having those same shared reactions. What, before we kind of jump into what about Friday was kind of so hateable, like, can you talk a little bit about how Friday became a viral phenomenon from this kind of random YouTube video to you talk about the, the aggregator website, the daily what, that was the first kind of thing that jumped on it. And like, what are, what are the pathways that it moved through to achieve the kind of viral status that it achieved? Yeah, so Rebecca Black's Friday video got big in March of 2011. So this was um, a kind of moment where viral videos were, um, th the pathways for viral videos were um, taking kind of particular shape. So something going viral was, was a, a kind of known quantity by this point, um, but this is still kind of early on in um, what I track as like the reification of virality. So yeah, we start off with this kind of random YouTube video, although the, the randomness, the kind of amount that this was a produced video is a huge part of the question, right? Like your, your second bit that we're gonna get to. Um, and this gets posted in a couple of places, right? So um, at this point in kind of the history of internet virality, we start to have these like secondary layers, these aggregators that what they're doing is kind of trawling for content and then um, collecting them for easier, um, viewing, consuming by a broader internet public. So earlier versions of this are, are things like Dig, which is kind of the predecessor to Reddit, right? We've got aggregating websites, but this is a little bit before um, maybe the, the way in which uh, a kind of truly like algorithmic cross-platform social media ecosystem existed the way we might think of it in the kind of late 2010s, 2020 right, right, right. era, right? So, um, so the originating one of these aggregators for the Rebecca Black Friday video is uh, a, Tumblr, um, a Tumblr blog called The Daily What, which is has a lot of a lot of fans. They um, the the Tumblr blog, the Daily What, posts this video, um, and the caption just says, um, "Where is your God now of the day? Um, I am no longer looking forward to the weekend." And all that it is, right? All that this post is is the thumbnail of the video, which is just it's innocuous, right? It's this kind of young, white, uh, brunette girl smiling on a lawn somewhere, right? So that, that kind of juxtaposition between this totally innocuous screenshot and this um, pretty hyperbolic 
caption, right? That's, that's a point of intrigue, right? You might click through to find out what's so bad about this video. And then it gets picked up and recirculated by kind of increasingly um, uh, legacy or like authoritative media over the next couple of weeks. So um, Tosh.0, oh, uh, Comedy Central offshoot picks it up, Reddit picks it up, um, but then also legacy media like Rolling Stone, like Time, um, like eventually the New York Times a couple of weeks later, those places begin to pick it up and report on it, right? So there's, there's a kind of expanding out of audience from people who are trolling the internet looking for humorous content to a kind of broader maybe... Um, beyond the internet audience as it gets to more and more legacy media coverage. And while all that is happening, um, you've got two people who are kind of participating in this, not just by watching the video, but they're participating by creating these remixed or response versions that are also occupying the like YouTube platform ecosystem as well. Um, so that's kind of providing additional feedback loops of viewership and kind of enthusiasm around this video. You know, like if you lived through it, you remember that Friday happened. You probably can't remember when it happened or like how it happened. You just remember the video or like the dress or like any of these viral moments. Like why, why is it important for you to understand the kind of micro history of the pathways through which something like this becomes viral? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the things that I started off doing when I when I started off doing my dissertation, kind of when I started off doing my work as a scholar of music and sound in the internet was I was encountering a lot of scholarship around the internet that was treating it as a kind of a historical um, kind of atemporal space, right? The, the internet is a kind of just like... Uh, always the same kind of always digital no the internet time. in 1999 is the same as right. the internet in 2004 is the same as the internet in 2020 or whatever or just like writing about scholars writing about the internet now there now um and reading that scholarship in you know say 2010 or 2015 and having it be just very, very clear that the internet that was now for that scholar was no longer the internet that was for me reading that scholarship, Right. even if it was just a couple of years later. Um, so I was kind of in response to doing that reading, that kind of secondary reading and background reading for me as a scholar, um, I, I wanted to be really particular about um, kind of putting a timestamp on the things that I was looking at on the internet, in part because I was tracking ways in which um, virality was changing across an internet history that was um, both felt very short, very recent, and like very long. Um, and also, so how things were staying the same, but also how things were changing, right? The ways that I could find coherences between a moment of virality in 1999 and 2013, um, but also the way in which, um, especially as I was seeing it, kind of mechanisms for making virality happen, making it happen faster, making it happen in ways that were um, financially, economically beneficial for particular actors, right? That those things were kind of changing and accelerating. Um, and tracking 
particularities in platforms, tracking particularities in discourse, tracking particularities in practices like remix and response, um, that those were ways that could help me account for those bigger changes in kind of the speed of virality, um, how virality is being encouraged and used and who it's being used to benefit. So in terms of why this went viral, which has to do with how widely hated this video was and the song was, you mentioned genre and gender kind of both playing into that. Can you talk a little bit about what is happening in this video that kind of creates such a discourse around it? Yeah, so um, one of the things that I say in the article is what is there to hate about the Friday video? What isn't there to hate, right? There's just a whole bunch of things. Um, there's a laundry list. You can really take your pick. One place that I think is useful to start is confusion around what the video was and who it was for. So here again, it's kind of important to think about the particular history of the YouTube platform, what was happening kind of in the very early 2000s. And this is a time when um, YouTube and Vivo have relatively recently kind of formed a partnership. This is basically, this is a moment when music videos, kind of official um, industrially produced music videos are finding a home on the YouTube platform. Um, and so this is, so YouTube is this space where originally, you know, it's this home for amateur production, maybe it's a home for piracy, but as we move into the early 2010s, it's a space where increasingly there are these kind of frictions, these encounters, um, these ways in which viewers have to negotiate whether what they're seeing is an amateur production or a professional one, right? Um, and one of the big problems that I think one of the latent problems with the Rebecca Black Friday video is that it's a, an object, an audiovisual object that kind of is confusing in that sense. It is in no way clear um, on which side of the dividing line, um, if there is a dividing line, right? It's, it's in a gray space between something that is clearly an amateur production and something that's a professional one. And it actually has a lot of markers of a kind of professional music video, um, especially in terms of its, um, the, the kind of high quality, the crispness of its visuals, of its uh, visual editing, et cetera. Um, but there are also a lot of things that kind of um, don't quite meet the standards of say, you know, like a Lady Gaga video. In it's terrible. <laughs> 2011. Right, right. And it's because it is, you know, it's, it's in no way um, operating with the same kind of a budget as a Lady Gaga video would have been in 2011, certainly. Um, but also that it's not, you know, that it was not meant to be operating for at all the same kind of audience, right, the same kind right, of, right. Um, the same kind of viewer scrutiny, right? So this was, um, Ultimately, uh, certainly from Rebecca Black's perspective, uh, a, an audiovisual object that was never meant to be seen by a huge swath of the public. This is something that um, she went to Arc Music Factory, which is this kind of like, um, get your foot in the door, kind of record your first music, like get your first music video produced um, and show it to other better producers who can make you other better music videos. Um, but this wasn't meant to be kind of given the wide distribution that say a, a Lady Gaga video would have had, right? So um, it's got 
kind of really cheesy visual effects, um, like the, you know, the flip book at the very beginning, the obvious like green screen of the second verse. Um, and it's also got, again, that kind of mix of high high production and low quality in terms of say uh, the like lack of melody in places, the like sure. just truly terrible text setting that we've got. And the one thing that people really um, focused on, which was the audible auto-tune, right? That Rebecca Black's voice was produced to an extent that it was audible, um, but not produced to an extent that people kind of found it palatable in the way that um, kind of highly produced pop music at the time was was being produced, right? So this gets us into questions of gender that um, I'm reading this, one of the main targets for hate, right? If people are encountering this object and they're having trouble kind of figuring out what to do with it, how to respond to it, what it's supposed to be doing in this YouTube ecosystem, one thing that was easy to latch onto and one thing that got a lot of hate directed towards it is the quality of Rebecca Black's voice. So in this big soup of possibilities of things to hate about this video, um, this central figure of um, a kind of adolescent white girl's voice, right. that becomes something that people hugely, hugely, hugely latch onto, right? So um, this gets us into kind of familiar narratives of, um, you know, kind of trollish misogyny online. So a lot of this was circulating on Reddit and other places where um, certainly in 2011, the language around this was just like deeply violent, deeply misogynistic, um, you know, all kinds of threats of, of violence, sexual violence, um, regular, regular violence, um, coming from the fact that Rebecca Black's voice was understood to be like displeasing. And so kind of all of this baggage of the ways in which this video wasn't working gets dumped onto the idea that her voice is not pleasing to hear, right? That it's poorly auto-tuned, that it's overly auto-tuned. Um, so this like white girlish voice is kind of bearing the weight of all of this um, confusion and distaste, right? And so um, one of the reasons that this blows up is because it becomes this moment of just everyone um, dogpiling on basically this this girl's voice. How do you kind of see the this kind of critique? I don't critique is like a bad word because it's, it's not like critique in the academic sense. It's just like people shitting on her. Um, uh, this relationship uh, to to kind of within a larger history of girls' voices in pop music being either criticized, silenced, marginalized. Um. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So this is certainly like, this is happening in 2011, right? And the particular situation of this virality within this kind of, you know, nasty echo chamber of like virulent online misogyny. Um, so there's a there's a you know media historical particularity here, but we can certainly also connect this to much longer, just very very familiar um, histories and narratives tropes within popular music more broadly, right? Um, that 
girl voices, the figure of the girl as a performer or as a fan kind of gets collapsed into um, denigrated ideas of the popular, right? Which gets, you know, it's, it's inauthentic, it's commercialized, it's, um, you know, the, it's, it's this kind of longstanding straw man for, say, right you know, rock authenticity or um, any, any kind of authenticity, right? You can, you can just kind of um, bring up this, this specter, this boogeyman of uh, girlish pop music, right? That, that's fake, that's empty, that's meaningless, right? So um, all of those histories too are the kind of um, baggage that prefigures Rebecca Black's Friday exploding in the way that they did from a, a music historical perspective. So that all of the kinds of things that, you know, you could have seen um, people lamenting about popular music from decades earlier, um, people are also saying about Rebecca Black. And they're also connecting her as a figure to other kind of currently marginalized pop figures. So there's a bunch of connection that happens um, discursively in, say, Reddit comment spaces, YouTube comment spaces, um, that links her to figures like Justin Bieber or Kesha or... Um, Fergie and the Black Eyed Peas, right? So other figures that are understood to be occupying this same kind of fake, empty, um, and here in this moment, like technologized through autotune, right? The way in which autotune or pitch correction software gets pulled into this, um, this kind of discursive network as well, that that gets brought in alongside the pop inauthenticity and right. it's like genderedness there i mean it seems like part of this kind of early youtube anxiety or whatever that you know everyone thinks pop music is going to be suddenly dominated by 12 year olds who get discovered by um platforms and have their careers managed by by corporate professionals or whatever this kind of like justin bieber anxiety um and i guess also like sound like young girls is is part of that as well right yeah which is like you know it's it is, again, much like sounding much longer histories in the music industry, right? Much longer anxieties anytime there's a kind of revelation that a music industry exists um, and that it, it works in ways, right? There's like, oh, no, but we thought it was a meritocracy all along, right? Um, and the YouTube platform is also a space that is kind of hosting those um, those anxieties, this kind of paradox of the idea of kind of meritocracy, the cream rising to the top, right? Like, oh, well, YouTube is this space where if you're talented enough and you work hard enough, you can get discovered. But then um, that's that's nesting right alongside these anxieties of um, YouTube is a space where the people who are getting discovered are um, the wrong kind of people, mm. the wrong kind of voices, um, not actually doing the work, and that YouTube discovery is a space where we can see kind of into the inner workings of the music industry, and we don't like being reminded that it is um, there and that it has inner workings. So you also, I mean, you talked to Rebecca Black. How did that come about? Like, what was that experience like? What did you learn from her? I did talk to Rebecca Black and she is a delight. She's a lovely young woman. Um, I, I was just, I was at work on the dissertation chapter and I 
I don't know, was probably procrastinating. Let's be real. Um, I was on social media. I like dug around and I found an email address for her publicist. And I reached out to say I was writing a dissertation chapter and would she be interested in talking to me? I'd love her perspective and didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks. And then the publicist reached out and was like, yeah, let's set up a call. So yeah, Rebecca Black and I had a, had a phone call. It was lovely. Um, it was, I came in kind of with my enthusiasm for these, you know, these remixes, these media objects that I had been consuming. Um, and I maybe like kind of unfairly was eager to talk to her about those. And she was about like, yeah. Not, not Friday about. Well, I mean, just the, you know, the way the, the, the kind of proliferation of content around the video. Um, and she was like, yeah, I did not consume any of that. <laughs> I was not interested in participating in any way with what this thing became. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. Um, but I think it was having her, having her perspective, kind of hearing about um, her version of events was, I mean, honestly, harrowing. Um, the way in which she kind of had to reiterate across the, you know, the immediate explosion of this video that she was a 13 year old who was the target of again right death threats rape threats just incredible amounts of violence both in you know in the i guess relatively innocuous removed spaces of say um online forum boards but also you know people reaching out to her in real life to kind of communicate wow. in um humorous and deeply unhumorous or humorous to them and deeply unhumorous ways like these again threats of violence um over you know a, a video she had made to to kind of try and advance her career towards being a performer of some kind um so yeah the the just the way in which um her experience of kind of needing to do a press tour to kind of remind people in on the internet and like in legacy media outlets of her like humanity and identity as a child was just yeah really tough to grapple with yeah. um yeah um and you know the way in which she has had at that point and like still continues to work to leverage her like the infamy of this audiovisual object into um, positive outcomes, right? Into charity work, into kind of doing um, non-bully, like anti-bullying work, um, and also her continued kind of social media presence in which she um, uses this to kind of uh, continually like shine a light onto um, ways to be positive and uplifting rather than um, negative and bullying in social media spaces, right? She's, um, she's currently got a flourishing TikTok presence where she uh, isn't like, you know, enthusiastic, positive kind of um, jokes around about Friday, but continually uses it to, to kind of push um, anti-bullying and like, you know, being a good person online messages. I want to come back to TikTok. Um, Always. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about these remixes. I mean, obviously there's a bajillion of them, so it's not necessarily an easy thing to summarize, but like what drew your attention to, I mean, besides 
that there was a constant proliferation of good ones. Like, what about this made it so remixable? What is interesting from a scholarly perspective about the kind of remix culture or recomposition culture around around this video? Yeah. Um, so what I think one thing that I'll say, you know, what drew my attention to them is part of my larger my whole thing, which is one of the things that drew my attention to them is that I was encountering this on the YouTube platform where um, when I watched the original Friday video, I kind of couldn't help but see the other ones, right? So again, we're all probably familiar with this, but at, in 2010, 2011, this was a relatively new feature that YouTube was serving up um, algorithmically oh, recommended, right, right, right. recommended videos. And so a lot of the responses to this video were being served up to me, were being kind of put in my face as I was watching this video, right? So I and other people consuming this, this is part of the, the viral moment is being afforded by the YouTube platform who's serving up these other versions alongside the original. Um, so on the one hand, like how, how am I engaging with these? Well, I'm, I'm being encouraged to 2011 me is being encouraged to buy the YouTube platform. Um, and in the kind of, in a, in a similar way or kind of from a different perspective, YouTube is also encouraging other creators to make related videos because of the possibility of them being served up alongside this very, very popular, highly circulated video. Right in something that again is probably pretty familiar to us but at that point was a relatively novel uh, kind of mode of operation for uh, an internet platform so one of the ways in which turning now to think about well what was so remixable about this right so remixes are certainly not the only thing that were happening music like strictly musical remixes were not the only thing that were happening so this was also the heyday of reaction videos which are have now kind of come back around they're having another moment in 2020 but um the phenomenon of the genre of uh, a youtube kind of aspirational celebrity reacting to this video, right? Saying um, nasty or critical or amusing things about it as they were watching it or in response to watching it. So those are happening. Um, but we also do have a lot of straight ahead musical remixes. Um, and I think one of the things that makes made this song so amenable to musical remixing is the way in which it did fall into this kind of um, excessively boilerplate pop formula right it's right. got um it's got a, a very very standard kind of verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus structure um really kind of uh, basic you might say boring uh, melodic structure uh really basic harmonies kind of basic instrumentation as well so a lot of ways in which familiarity or kind of recognizability of this song as a text could be maintained, um, but that people could kind of remix it or, or make it novel in ways that could clearly have a kind of link back to the original video, um, but would be clearly audible as something else. Chicken in the front seat, sitting in the back seat, gotta make my mind up. Which seat can I take? It's Friday, Friday. So people did a lot of um, 
genre resetting. So taking this very, very kind of paradigmatic pop object and reformatting its genre in some way by adding kind of signifiers of other genre-ness. Um, so whether that's redoing the instrumentation in some way, um, but a lot of the times, and I say this in the article, uh, it's redoing the vocals in some way. So one of the big ways in which people were um, kind of repointing the genre of this were um, to readjust the vocal track. So um, one of the one of the big ones, one of the most well-circulated versions of this song was a death metal version, right. which um, replaces uh, the, the kind of pop synth instrumentation with um, like screaming metal guitars and kind of uh, unrelenting drum track, but also with these kind of screaming death metal vocals as well. We also get a version that is not just an acoustic guitar cover, but like specifically a Bob Dylan folk cover. Party and party and yeah. Party and party and yeah. Fun. Fun, fun, fun. Looking forward to the weekend. Yesterday was Thursday, Thursday. Friday, Friday. Mm. In which, right, somebody takes up Friday on an acoustic guitar and kind of um, imitates the, the sounds of Bob Dylan's voice um, in re-performing these lyrics. Um, and so there's the recognizability of the kind of pop formula of the original means that it's really easy to keep some of the components intact, but also um, like radically reinterpret other aspects uh, that make it point in these other genre directions, right? Um, and one of my points in the piece, uh, in, the, in the article, is the way in which, A, these versions were frequently received much more enthusiastically than the original. Um, so if you, you know, read through the YouTube comments of these, there's a lot of people kind of cheering on the creators, saying, um, either ironically or um, earnestly, like this is much better than the original. I love listening to this. I've listened to this a bunch of times. Um, and oftentimes the thing that is being um, changed is not necessarily the, you know, the boring song structure, the boring chord progressions, the boring melody, uh, but the thing that's being changed and the thing that's being lauded here um, is the voice, right? So we're changing Rebecca Black's white girlish over auto-tuned voice to a masculine voice in some way, right? It's, it's screamo. It's, um, it's like a detuned dubstep voice. Uh, it's a Bob Dylan voice. And suddenly when we change the voice, even if we change nothing else, we change the voice. Um, and suddenly this song is, uh, worthy of kind of praise and elevation. So, um, there, you know, you kind of get a, a playing out of, of this reality that all of the, uh, the kind of hate coming together around this right. as like a terrible pop object um, can really be boiled down to... Uh, uh, gender and genre, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, gender and genre, right? It's like girl voice, bad. Um, I mean, I literally just said I like the Bob Dylan version and I said 10 minutes ago that I didn't like the Rebecca Black version. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. But I mean, I, yeah. Like, this is something that I was thinking about when I was reading, which is, and this maybe also can, can help us pivot to talk a little bit about, about your more recent work on TikTok. Like, I spend way too much time on the internet, but I'm also kind of like a Weird. little bit of like a, I don't know, like a fuddy-duddy about like, I'm not interested in TikTok. I'm not interested in like watching a bunch of reaction videos or like, like I tend to, you know, whatever. I'm a, a white guy who probably falls into a lot of kind of prejudiced uh, views about, about some of this. Like, but, you know, one thing that I've noticed in, in this piece and in our conversation and also in your other work is like, it's not like you're trying to necessarily rehabilitate this as like great art or something. Like, how do you figure out the balance between and I was thinking about this with regards to TikTok, like the, this is a expressive culture that needs to be understood. And like, you can still, there's also the cynical and I think still relevant take with something like TikTok and YouTube of like, these are content delivery platforms that are designed to keep you on them and like surveil you and make money, turn you into garbage data that makes money. And also maybe China is like bad or something. Um, <laughs> like, how do you, how do you balance all of that? Oh man. Um, yeah, I mean that's right. Like that's the that's the whole that's that's it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> that's right? the whole thing. Um, it's that on the one hand, right? These are um, spaces and and sources for um, creativity, for like delight, for kind of um, collective positive affect, right? Um, and then on the other hand, they're also maybe terrible, and you know they're they are the the material by which um, these massive platforms have been able to to grow and to dominate and to um I don't know potentially just like destroy um, democracy as we know it and also the world yeah so um what do you think musicology gets out of understanding virality in these mm, yeah um I mean I think. On the one hand, I am, okay, I don't know if this is an answer to the question, but it is the answer that I'm going to give, which is on the one hand, um, I think that I'm interested in producing work that kind of lives in that tension, right? That, that is appreciating that this is a space for, um, for creativity, for kind of meaningful, um, like amateur or non-professional musicality in the 21st century. Um, and that that is a, like that that is a space that is valuable and that is meaningful and that is worthy of study. And also I'm, you know, deeply kind of um, techno pessimist in that I think it's um, that that creative labor is very much kind of um, uh, taken advantage of um, by these, you know, massive and deeply destructive platforms and certainly you know in the latter part of the 2010s and the 2020s um but I also don't think that what what I don't think that my scholarship is doing is like informing any of the participants in that of that situation right I think that the people who are some of the people who are most savvy of this dynamic are the people whose creative labor is like most being taken advantage of, right? The people who are working to um, eke out some kind of a, a like a multifaceted like musical and viral um, career from within these platforms, right? Within these uh, kind of ever reifying structures of virality. Um, I 
maybe I'm thinking about speaking a little bit more to musicologists in that sense, right? Um, you know, doing some of this work that challenges the idea that is still so pervasive, right? That people like, you know, Will Cheng have talked about um, that, you know, music is necessarily a, a positive force and thinking about the ways in which, um, you know, I'm not necessarily saying actually music is bad. Um, actually music on the internet is bad, but, you know, being part of the conversation that's bringing nuance to those questions, right? right. Um, and so um, trying to kind of help make space for other musicologists to like enter into that um, nuanced conversation as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly I think I would like to, you know, I would like to, for my, I don't know what, what I want my work to do. Well, <laughs> I don't think um, any of us really know. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, you know, be a, be part of, um, creating some kind of space where we can all like make ephemeral, like, but delightful music together. Um, but that it's not necessarily for the purpose of, like more specifically selling me shoes or like, you know. A, yeah, the delightfulness of these expressive cultures. Yeah. While also, on, like, it's like the, the kids are all right, but the corporations that exploit them are, are not or something, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, precisely, right? Um, And I think one of the realities of living in this moment is that we're all kind of, like, we're all navigating that space, yeah. right? We're all navigating the kind of there's no ethical consumption under capitalism like but we're not going to stop making music <laughs> well that's a great place to end it thank you so much thank you for having me will it has been a delight i'm super grateful to paula harper who is a postdoctoral teaching fellow at washington university in st louis for that great talk Dr. Harper will also be joining the faculty of the University of Nebraska at Lincoln this fall as an assistant professor of musicology, so many congrats to Paula. Please visit our website, soundexpertise.org, to learn more about her work. She's also got a great Twitter presence, so follow her at PCH9857. I would be very, very grateful to you if you took a minute to give us a review. Ideally, five stars. I'll settle for four. Three stars if you really, really don't like the podcast. I don't know why you'd be listening right now if you don't like the podcast, but whatever. Um, give us that review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. It really helps boost our audience and um, makes me feel good when I'm uh, scrolling through Apple Podcasts uh, in the morning. If you like our editing and music, please check out the work of our great producer, D. Edward Davis, on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Del Antonio for transcribing our episodes to make them more accessible. You can follow me on Twitter at Seated Ovation. Finally, I'm super excited for next week's conversation with the music librarian David Hunter about his fascinating research and important research on Handel and his role in investing in the slave trade. See you next Tuesday. We see.